Is your life limited by the labels the world and other people have used to define you? Labels you have internalized and apply to yourself every day. Labels like afraid or addict, orphan, damaged goods, failure, maybe even religious. These labels might be sewn into your life with such tight little stitches that they feel like a part of you. They feel like they define you, but that's a lie. If you let him, Jesus can remove those old labels and tattoo new ones onto your soul. Then you'll begin to see yourself as God the Father sees you. The limits will be lifted. Your life will be transformed, a limitless life. called Limitless Life. Now, last week, uh, maybe you were here, maybe you weren't, but last week we learned something about ourselves. Now, to be honest, some of you may have already known this about yourselves. Others of you, you were like, this was revolutionary, right? But last week, we learned that we are namers by nature, that we are namers by nature. In other words, we, um, we have a name for everything. In fact, what we saw last week was that Adam, the very first man, right, he was given a job by God to name and label everything. And he did exactly that. In fact, God not only asked him to do the job, he gave him the tools to be able to do the job. And those same tools that were inside of Adam are inside of you and are inside of me. And so by nature, by the way that we were designed, the way that we were created, we are namers. We take things and we pick up labels, right? We not only assign them to other things, right? We not only put labels on other stuff, but when we see them, right, we tend to pick them up and apply those labels to ourselves. And last week we talked about lots of different labels that we add on to our own lives. At the end of it, what we saw, though, is, is that many of these labels that we add into our own lives, really, they're not labels that just name us. They're labels that define us. They're labels that limit us on what we're capable of doing because of whatever it is that's written on the label. Last week, we talked about the whole reason that Jesus came was not to cover up those labels. Not even to rip them off of us, but was he was so disgusted with the labels that we were wearing on our lives that instead he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you something brand new. And then I'm going to stick a label on you that says that you are mine and that you are new. That's an incredibly powerful message. To hear from Jesus that he doesn't see those labels that we so constantly pick up all over the place, whether they were something that we defined ourselves with or whether it was something that somebody else gave to us. He says, I came so that you could be new. Today we're going to continue to build on that idea from last week. We're going to take that idea of being a new creation 
and the labels that God wants to have in our lives and to say, what does it look like if we are new? What should we do now? So over the next few weeks, here's what we're going to do. We're going to be looking at some stories from the Old Testament. Some people that lived even before Jesus came that give us a glimpse of what I think it would look like for us to surpass these sort of limits in our lives. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Genesis chapter 22. Genesis chapter 22. As you're flipping there, there's something I would like to acknowledge about this series. You're like, week two, and now you're going to tell us about the series? Yeah, week two, I'm going to tell you something about the series. And that is that um, this series has a unique set of challenges about it. And every series has some different challenges that come with it. Um, most of them are in my own sinful life, and I have to deal with everything that I'm about to tell you. And God's like, hey, I'm going to work on you first. But this one has a, a different set of, of unique challenges to it. Because um, I believe that there are a couple different ways to teach the Bible. All right? Some of you, if you've been around for a little while, you've heard me say this, so it might be a good recap for you. If you're newer in our room, or maybe today's the first time, hey, you're here on a great day because I'm going to tell you one of the things that we believe when it comes to teaching the Bible. You see, there's, there's three different ideas about how you should teach the Bible. There's this idea of what's called expository teaching. Now, you've probably not heard that big word, but simply expository means to go verse by verse or to look at everything that is contained within a, a specific passage and to begin to pull it all apart. And there are some churches that you'll walk into and they'll tell you this is the only way that you should study the Bible. Somebody who doesn't study the Bible like this, they're just picking and choosing what it is that they want. And there's some truth to what it is that they're saying. There is some good things about expository teaching. But here's what I believe is that it is a good method in order to use to look at what Scripture is teaching and for teaching to come that way. There's a second idea, though, about teaching, and that is what's called topical teaching. And topical teaching is this idea of you look at a topic, for example, love. Month of February, it's a good topic, right? And so some churches will say, here's what we're going to do, is we're going to take a topic like love, and we're going to look at all of the different passages that exist in the Bible from start to finish about this idea, this topic. And so they'll build a series of teaching that's around a topic, and then they'll begin to look for some things that support that and give you an, an entire biblical perspective on that topic. I think you can already see there are some benefits that come with that, right? When you're verse by verse, you don't necessarily deal with a topic that's there, and you don't get to see the breadth of everything that exists inside of that. And so topical has this um, built-in strength of, I get to see the whole biblical perspective of something. But I think you also see there's a weakness that comes with that one, right? And the weakness is, is that you can pick and choose what topics you're going to talk about. You can pick and choose what passages you're going to use when you're talking about that topic. So it has some inherent dangers within it. But there's a third way that you can teach it. It's called narrative. Now, narrative simply means the story, right? And it means to take the stories of the Bible and attempt to bring them to life, to help the people to understand that those stories are about real people in real situations and that they have a real application to your life. Now, personally, I think all three of these things have strengths and weaknesses. I think all three of them, there are certain people that will relate better with each of them. 
And so we decided early on, as a part of the teaching ministry of this church, as the preaching ministry of this church, that what we would do is intentionally walk through all three types of teaching. So there are series that when you walk into our room are incredibly exegetical. We'll be in a certain passage and tearing it apart verse by verse. In the very next series, you can come back and it will be topical. And we're going to be looking at the breadth and the width and the depth of whatever this idea and this topic is so that we can hit all of the different areas of it. And then there's this series, a narrative series. And I have to be honest, of all three of those, I think narrative is the hardest for me to teach. I love that the lights are going down. It's like, it's like bringing some dramatic emphasis on what we're doing here. But to be honest, I think narrative is the hardest of the three for me to do. There are some guys who are incredibly skilled at narrative, and they can tell you a story and weave in the application, and people are just sitting on the edge of their chairs. And you would think, as a kids pastor who spent 15 years telling the stories of the Bible, this is the one that I would be really, really good at. And maybe it's my own insecurities. Because when I look at these stories of the Bible, I think about those years spent in kids' ministry, and I'm like, hey, I don't want them to see me as a kids pastor. I want to be an adult pastor right now. And so as we come at this narrative stuff, I just want to lay out some of my fears as we come into it, but that I think that it is important to hear these stories, these real stories of real people that are in the Bible and about the real things that happen in their lives and the real applications that we can make because of it and why they're there. So with all of that, with all of that, let's dive into this incredibly rich story of this person who was following God and because of that he made an impact on not history but his story I always love that whenever I see that meme that says history is just really his story so our story comes from Genesis chapter 22 by the way let me tell you one of the other things that's hard about narrative is that usually narratives are big long chunks in the Bible right and they're really hard for me to zero in and say, hey, open up your Bible to this one verse and let's look at this together. So I'm going to help you a little bit, but I'm just going to tell you the story and where it comes from. Our story comes from Genesis chapter 2, and it's about a man named Abraham. Not Abraham Lincoln, right? This guy was long before that point. In fact, most scholars think that he was somewhere about 4,000 years ago from right now. Abraham... The story opens up in chapter 22, and it tells us that after these things. So in other words, the author that's there that's writing says, hey, I want you to know that there are things that have happened in Abraham's life. And this story takes place after those things. Let me tell you some of those things that had happened in his life. Abraham had left his home country. He left where his family was and where everything he was in order to follow God. That's crazy. I mean, I might know somebody who's done that, but that's still crazy. And then, after he did that, you're like, oh my goodness, that takes a lot of faith for a guy like that to do that. Then, he gets into a situation where he gets a little bit nervous, and he tells his wife, he says, listen, I'm worried that these people are going to think that you're beautiful, and that they're going to want to kill me if they find out that I'm married to you, so would you not tell them that we're married? What? You just left your home country because God told you to. You get somewhere, and you're worried that they're going to kill you because of it? And so you tell your wife to lie. Okay, fine. I guess. 
doesn't work out so well, they get run out of town. They figure it out. Then, then God comes to, at the time his name was Abram, right? And God makes a promise to him. He says, Abram, I, I want to turn you into a great nation. In fact, I want to change your name right here from Abram to Abraham, from an exalted father to the father of a great multitude. And he says, here's what I want. Abraham, could you number the stars? Could you count them all in the sky? Because whatever you count up there is how many I'm going to make your nation into one day. He's like, I'm going to make you great. And the reason that I'm going to do it is, is because the governing of self that you guys have been doing isn't working. And this whole divine kingdom that I have been wanting to set up since Eden has been failing. So I'm going to do something totally different. I'm going to do it through you. And I'm going to set up a divine nation that's ruled by me, God. And if you'll follow me, I'm going to do something crazy. Abraham said, okay. His name became, went from Abram to Abraham. But Abraham at the time had zero kids. By the way, when he left his homeland, he was 75. When he got to this point, he was 99. I don't know about you, but at 99, I'm not expecting to have any more kids. Thank you, Austin. I appreciate that. Newest kid in the room over there. That's what's going on. So Abram gets this promise from God. And he's like, well, all right. God said it. I believe it. And so Abraham and Sarah go back and they have this conversation. She's like, okay, I guess if God's going to do it, we'll do it. And they wait a little bit and nothing happens. And so Sarah says, you know what, Abraham, why don't you um, take my servant over here? Her name's Hagar. She's beautiful, right? Why don't you have relations with her and we'll get a, an heir that away? Because maybe I'm just not supposed to do it. Maybe I'm not supposed to be part of it. Maybe I'm still tainted from all of this stuff earlier where I lied for you and I wasn't supposed to and I knew the right thing to do, but I didn't do it anyways. Maybe God's punishing me. So would you do this? Abraham says, sure. <laughs> so Hagar gets pregnant. Has a boy, name's Ishmael, right? And then right after that, Sarah gets pregnant. And Isaac comes. And they name him Isaac because it means laughter. And they laughed at the fact that God had said that he was going to do all of this through him. Well, as I'm sure you can imagine, Sarah's there. She's got her baby. Over here is Hagar with her child, a little competition starts to show up. And Abraham has to choose, what's he gonna do? So he runs Hagar out of town, child and all. And it's after these things, that's a lot of things. <laughs> after these things that God shows up in order to test Abraham about what it meant to be the father of a nation. About if he believed the promises that God had given to him. And so God and Abraham have a conversation. And Abraham responds and says, God, I'm here and I'll do whatever you want me to do. And after their conversation, the very next morning, Abraham gets up. In fact, it says he gets up early in the morning. Now, I don't know who gets up early in the morning. 
Ryan's over there yawning already. He's like 10.30 is early in the morning. I got you, Ryan. He gets up early in the morning. And Abraham and Isaac, and he takes two male servants with him. And they take off for a three-day journey to go to Mount Moriah in order to worship God on the mountain and to offer a sacrifice to him. So they load up and they begin this three-day journey. And they get all the way to the foot of the mountain. And Abraham looks at the two servants that are with him. And he says to the servants, he says, hey, you guys stay here. The boy and I, we're going to go up there. We're going to go worship. And then we're going to come back. The servants are like, okay. And so he and the boy load up. They take the wood that's there and they begin to walk up the mountain. When they get up the mountain, Isaac looks around. He says, hey, Dad, I think we forgot something. He says, what are we sacrificing? And Abraham says, God will provide. God will provide what it is that we're going to sacrifice. Isaac says, okay. Then Abraham walks over and he begins to tie ropes around Isaac. his hands and he lays Isaac on the altar because three days ago God and Abraham had talked and God said here's what I want you to do Abraham I want you to take Isaac your one your only son Isaac the one whom you love the one who everything about your promise is wrapped up into and I want you to sacrifice him. And here's Abraham. Here's Isaac. Knife in the air. Ready to sacrifice his son. As he gets ready to bring down the knife, an angel of the Lord stops him. And he looks over. In the bushes over there is a ram that's tangled up. And I can just imagine that with tears streaming down his face, Abraham is like, there's the sacrifice. Let's go get it. And he and Isaac return home. Some of you right now are like, wait, wait, what just happened? You're telling me he put his son on an altar in order to sacrifice it to God because God asked him to do that? What? Before we dive into the story, though, I want to take a moment. Well, take a moment for us to pray. Normally, I just, I say kind of like a, what we would call like a pastoral prayer, like I pray for all of us in the room, but today what I want you to do is I want you to spend a moment in prayer before we continue on, and, and here's what I want to encourage you to pray about as we get ready to wrestle with this passage and what it means. I want you to pray, God, would you open up my heart in such a way to hear from you about what we're going to talk about today? God, would you 
challenge me in a way that maybe I've never been challenged before. God, we're about to talk about a huge concept. Faith. And God, I know, I know I don't have anything like what Abraham had. And I seriously doubt many of us in this room do. And God, when I read this passage, when I look at what it says, praying in my own heart. I'm praying for understanding. I'm praying for wisdom. I'm praying for discernment. I'm praying to apply the things that we're going to talk about in my own life. God, would you help set us, set us on a course, on a path of faith? Not a limited faith, not a non-existent faith, but God, that looks limitless like what Abraham had. Pray that in your name. Amen. Faith. That's a loaded religious word, right? Faith. It gets thrown around in a lot of places with a lot of things. So how could Abraham do this? Somebody says, in faith. In faith. Yeah. How come he didn't ask any questions? Faith and faith. How come he he didn't like argue with God about that? I, I would have so many questions about that. Me too. Me too. And to be honest, so many people have been so cavalier with this idea and this word of faith that maybe maybe perhaps you've doubted if you even have any of this in fact maybe some of you are sitting in the room and if you were honest about it this word faith and how somebody used it at some point in time caused you to stumble and maybe even walk out of the church maybe it's your first time back in the church because of this word faith you just you just struggled with it you're like i don't know what it means to have faith maybe you're sitting here right now and you're like this is my last chance my hand is on the doorknob right now to walk out of the church because of this idea of faith and you're just barely hanging on maybe maybe this is you or maybe this is someone that you know but here's the perception reception about faith is this is that christianity or being a jesus follower requires some sort of mind numbing experience denying faith that faith is this sort of head in the sand because if you look too close at the numbers 
If you look too close at the details, the whole thing just doesn't add up anymore. That it's this sort of idea that if you were to listen to people's experiences, if you were to, to hear what they had gone through, if you were to even just think about what your own experiences are, right? That you end up in this place where you're like, either the Bible is true and I have to deny all of my own experiences or what, what I experienced is true and I have to deny Christ and deny what that said. And the truth is, is that that's where a lot of people are at today. Maybe not you sitting in this room right, right now, but probably somebody that you know. Maybe it is you. And listen, this is my fault. This is the fault of preachers who are like me, who very easily have overcomplicated something that should not have been that complicated. We've confused it. We've added things to it. We've done all of this other stuff about what faith is. And so when we read a story like Abraham, right, and we hear the word faith attached to it, we go, tapping out, done, I don't want anything to do with anything that looks like that. But Jesus, listen, Jesus didn't ever say to anybody to forget the facts. Jesus didn't tell anybody to ignore their experiences. In fact, what he said was, he said, I'm going to give you all of those things, lean into all of it, because I will be proven out in it. Bring it all to me. That's what Jesus said, because he says that faith is not some sort of mind-numbing or experience-denying thing. So what is faith then? If it's not that, what is it? Well, let me just start with what it's not. Let me just start with something that faith is not. Faith is not some sort of force or power. Right? Faith is not some sort of lasso that we take and we put around God. And if we just have enough faith, if we have enough people who have faith, if we have enough people who can pray the right thing, who can say the right things, who can do the right things, then it will force God to do what we want him to do. That's not faith. Some of you, though, you grew up in a church where that's what faith sounded like. That you just needed to get a bunch of people who had enough faith. Maybe you had somebody, maybe somebody even close to you who was sick. And you were praying for God to heal them. You're like, God, I, I really want you to heal them. And then nothing happens. You're like, well, I must, I must not have enough faith, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring somebody else with me. And so you, you go and you invite somebody else to come alongside of you and to pray with you. And together you both begin to pray, and you begin to grow an ever-growing circle of people praying. Before long, the whole church is praying, and then eventually somebody comes, maybe the pastor, maybe somebody else. They put some special oil on the person, and you're like, now God is going to, he's going to do this. And we have faith that's going to happen. Some strong prayers, some strong words, strong things, loud things start getting said. Nothing happens. 
joy. God, are you real? Are, are you are you there? Because I I just I, I'm not sure anymore. <coughs> but listen, faith is not some sort of a power or a force to be controlled or tapped into. Andy Stanley says this, he says, listen, a force or a power that you can tap into and control is called magic, not faith. Faith is not magic, and magic is not faith. Now, I'm not telling you that you should go out and use magic. Well, I am telling you that faith is not some sort of a force or some sort of power. Here's the second thing that faith is not. Faith is not some sort of magic formula, right? It's not some sort of, hey, if you figure all of these out, if you do things in this right order, some combination lock, that if you set 777 on there, all of a sudden, tink, it all opens up for you. That's not faith. You may have heard it even said this way. If you'll send your money in, that's not faith. Faith is not a formula. So if that's not what faith is, which let's be honest, we know that's not what faith is. Right? When we see that sort of thing, even though it makes us question Right? When we hear somebody who leans in and describes faith in those kind of ways, there's something in us that kind of goes, oh. So what is faith? Well, the author in Hebrews helps us out. He gives a, a definition of faith. He says, now faith is, which anytime the Bible says a word and is, you just put a giant equal sign there. Right? Faith equals something. So here's what he says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. All right, time out. There's a trap word in that sentence, right? Hope. What in the world does hope mean? If that's what I have an assurance of, it's that thing that is hoped for. What in the world is hope? We understand this word. We use it all the time. We hope for all kinds of things. We hope to get a raise. I don't hear any amens on that one. There you go. Yeah. Here we go. Mamas, we hope to get sleep. Yeah. We hope for our football team to win today. I'm not going to give you the side of that one, right? I, I know where you sit at, Parker. If you're on this side of the room, you may be a 49ers fan. I'm just saying. Uh, there are probably some Kansas City fans on this side too. So, Listen, faith, faith happens when your hope so becomes an assurance that something will be so. All right? Let me say that again. Faith happens when your hope so becomes an assurance that something will be so. So we understand what hope means, right? Hope means wanting something to be with no guarantee. 
We hope for our football team to win today. We have no guarantee that that's going to happen. We just have a hope of it. We hope for a raise. We have no guarantee that that's going to happen. We just hope for it. We hope for sleep. Man, I don't know. There may be some guarantees on that. It's called NyQuil. But um, just kidding. We would never use it for that sort of purpose in our house. Amen. So hope means wanting something to be with no guarantee. And faith happens when your hope so becomes an assurance that something will be so. Now, we're not talking like some sort of a sure bet sort of a thing. Right? You've heard about those sort of things, a sure bet. Right? If you, if you bet here, then that will definitely come. We've all been, we've seen that trap. We know what that looks like. Right? But the author of Hebrews, the writer here is saying that, that what makes us confident or assured of a hope that will be so well that's the question right what makes us what, what makes us confident or assured that our hope so will become a be so because that's faith and to be honest the writer of Hebrews doesn't answer the question he's like well faith is the assurance of things hoped for but he doesn't go on to tell you about, like, how we get there. And the reason he doesn't answer it is because he's pretty sure that you already know the answer. You're like, wait, time out. You think I already know the answer about how um, to turn my hope so into a be so or how to be confident in that? I do. I do. Let, let's, just, let, let's just see if you know the answer. When you're hoping for a raise, right? When you're hoping to get a bonus, or maybe you're hoping to get a new contract, or maybe you're hoping, Aaliyah, for a date. When you're hoping for what that is, right? You, you're not confident of any of that happening, but when do you move to being confident in that? The moment that you're boss walks in and he says to you hey I know that you've been hoping for the moment that that boy that you like texts you and says hey I know that you've been hoping for me to ask you out I know what you've been hoping for and I'm going to deliver on that when your boss walks in and says I know you've been hoping for a raise and you're going to get one starting February the 2nd. Your hope so becomes a well be so because of the promise that somebody makes. And when you go home, you no longer say to your spouse, hey, I'm hoping that I'm going to get a raise on February the 2nd. You're now confident about the promise that was given to you by your boss. And so the writer of Hebrews, he says, listen, here's what moves you from a hope so to a confident will be so. He says it's the promise. The author of Hebrews goes on in that same verse about defining faith says that it moves not only from that but it's the conviction of things not seen 
When your boss walks in and says that he promises you the raise, you haven't gotten the raise yet. You haven't seen the money in your bank account yet to tell you that the raise has transpired. But you still have faith that it's going to happen. Because your hope so has turned into a will be so. So I want you to hold on to that for a second, that idea. I want to read to you what Paul, the guy who wrote most of the New Testament, says in the book of Romans about Abraham. comes in chapter 4, verse 20. He says, no unbelief made him, that's Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. And if you're in your Bible with it, you should just underline this. Because he was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is what faith is. Right? Faith is is, just to put a definition together that's not exactly what Hebrews said, but real, real, real close to it, faith is confidence that God is and will do what he promised to do. Faith is confidence that God is and will do what he promised to do. When we do not believe that God is, it is because of faith. When we do not believe that God will do something, it's because of faith. Because faith is confidence that God is, right? Our faith doesn't move God to do something. Our faith is just the confidence that he is doing something. That he is who he said he is. That he will do what he said he will do. That's what faith is. And Abraham did not believe that God is because of faith. He already knew who God was and who God is. And that gave him the faith. And listen, he believed all of these things because of the evidences and the experiences that led to the growth of his faith. That whole story about all of these things that had already happened in Abraham's life were all the moments of experience with God. They were all the moments where God said to do something and he had a choice to either go, yes, God, I will believe you are who you say you are and you will do what you said you will do. Or no, God, I'm not going to believe what you are, what you said you are, and that you're going to do what you said you do. There are moments when he got it right and there are moments when he got it wrong. And he used all of that, and God didn't beat him up over those moments where he got it wrong or those moments where he got it right. He used all of that to bring him to the point that when God asked this big, huge, tremendous step of him, that he was like, listen, God, I've looked at this. I understand that when I've done it my own way, it doesn't work out. 
And while I don't understand how this is going to work out, I know who you are, and I know the promise that you've given me, and I am confident that because of who you are, you are going to do what you said you will do. Listen, Abraham didn't go to sleep one night and wake up the next day with faith. That's not how faith works. It grew step by step by step. And there was a moment where Abraham said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to trust that you are who you say you are and that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. And he took a step in that direction. And a lifetime of steps led him to a moment that when God said, hey, your whole promise is pinned on this guy. In fact, in case you were wondering, I'm just going to skip down just a minute there, Brittany. In case you were wondering, later on in the book of Hebrews, same chapter 11, just in case we were, we were wondering about this, by faith Abraham, when he was tested to offer up Isaac, who he had received the promise of and was in the act of offering up his son. And this is what was said about his son, that through Isaac, all of your offspring shall be named. Listen, this wasn't like some sort of, well, if I get rid of this son, then God will just give me a new son, right? Or maybe it wasn't supposed to happen through Isaac. No, God had been very, very specific about it's going to happen through Isaac. And so here it is, he's laying out his entire future, everything that he thought that it was supposed to be. God's saying, are you going to trust me for your future? Or are you going to trust you for your future? I'm going to tell you one more story and then we'll go. It's actually a story that Jesus tells. It's a story about three managers, three servants, really. And these three servants, each of them received a talent. Now, when we hear that word talent, we often equate that with, like, abilities. And I think that's probably okay in this, but specifically, talents was money. One received five, one received two, one received one talent. And then the master went away on a long journey. And the servant who received five and the servant who received two, they began going about working and investing and using those resources that had been given to them. And before long, they had doubled the talents that had been given to them. But the one who received one, he went off and he buried it, like buried treasure. And he continued to do life as he's always known it. One day, Master came back. And, as appropriate for the Master to do, he asked for the money back that he had put them in charge of. And the first two brought the money back, and they brought a report back about what had transpired. And then the third did the same. He went out, he dug it up, dusted it all off. And offered it back to the master. 
And after the report of the first two, the master looks at the third and he, he, he's perplexed. <clears throat> and he doesn't really understand what has transpired and, and, and what happened. And so he asks him, he says, what happened? And the third servant replied that he knew how hard the master had worked for his money. And so he didn't want to be responsible for losing what the master had given to him. So he took it out and he, and he buried it. And the master looked at him in, in just disbelief about, I, I, I can't believe what I'm hearing back from you. You, you knew who I was. You knew what I was about. And if you knew that, because you just told me, you should have at the very least have like put this in the bank or something so it would have grown like with some interest. Instead, you were a fool for what you had done. And he cast him away. In fact, he took the one talent and he gave it to the other managers, the other servants. And he kicked that servant out. To the other two servants, though, he turned to them and he said to them, he said, well done, good and faithful servants. Good and faithful servants. You know, in that story, I think it's pretty clear who placed limits on themselves and who had not. Two servants were able to go beyond what had been given to them, but one was not. Two of them had confidence to use what the master had given to them, and as a result, they were called faith-filled, or full of faith. But the one, one was not. They all knew who the master was. They all knew that he would return one day. They all knew that he was going to ask for his money back that he had entrusted them with. And those beliefs caused them to act in a certain way. And two of them took that action and the evidences and the experiences of what they had. And one of them did not. You know, I think it's Interesting that we started with that idea of people who think that a Jesus follower is somebody who has a mind-numbing, experience-denying faith. And yet, the master who's representing Jesus here is upset with somebody who lived out a mind-numbing, experience-denying by burying what he'd been. Faith caused those two servants to act. Faith caused Abraham to act. By the way, let me finish off that passage in Hebrews where it talks about the fact that Isaac was the offspring, the named offspring of Abraham. Here's how it finishes in verse 20. Abraham considered that God 
was able even to raise him from the dead. You know what I find fascinating about that statement? Now we would look back at it and go, well, of course God could do that. We saw him raise Jesus from the dead. We've seen other people that were raised from the dead all in the context of that. So, of course, God, do you know that at this point, nobody had ever done that? Nobody had been raised from the dead. And yet Abraham believed that God was so good and that God was who he said he was and was going to do what he said he was going to do. He's like, listen, even if I do kill Isaac, if God doesn't provide any other way out of this, God will raise him back from the dead because God said this is how it was going to happen, that my offspring, that this great nation was all going to come through Isaac. And I trust God. <clears throat> Even when it doesn't make sense to me. Abraham's faith had grown to the point that he considered that even though he had never seen God do it, that God would, that God could. The evidence was all in. The experience was all in. He knew who God is. He knew who God was. He knew what God's promises were. And he was living on those. So maybe you're sitting here today and you're like, faith. Faith. Here's the real question about faith. Everybody has faith in something. The question becomes, what faith you have, maybe what faith you've lost, what is it fixed to? What is it fixated on? What is it tied down to? What is it fastened to? Same writer of Hebrews, chapter 12, one chapter over. He says this. He says, you and I are surrounded by a, a huge cloud of witnesses. And because of that, we should put aside every weight and every sin which clings so closely and we should run with endurance the race that is set before us. And again, if you've got yours open and want to underline, here it is. We should look to Jesus. Why? Because he is the founder and the perfecter of our faith. You see, Abraham knew the secret to a limitless faith long before the writer of Hebrews ever even wrote it down. He knew he had to fix his eyes. And he had to fix his faith on Jesus. I don't know about you. My hope for you, my desire for you, is that one day, you would hear the same words that I so desperately desire to hear. That is to stand in front of my Jesus and to hear from him, well done, good and faithful servant. And it all starts with a step. A step to say, I move towards trusting you, God, 
of knowing more of who you are, understanding what your promises are so I can live in them. That grows our faith. So let's pray. You know, maybe you're here and it's the first time you've ever heard somebody who said this about faith. That faith is, is placing it all on who God is about the promises that he's made. You know, the most important promise that God made was that you and I could have eternal life. We could be with him forever. The fact that he wanted that for us. And the promise continues on to say that the only way that you can get that is through saying yes to Jesus and saying that you'll follow him. Maybe you've never put your faith there never taken that step to lean in and say, God, if that is who you are, and if your promise is true, then I'm going to choose to put some faith in that. I'm going to lean towards that. If that's you, don't walk out of here today. If you're like, you know what? Yes. I want to say yes to that. Are you seeing at the back of the room? Don't leave with a question mark about where your faith is at. So thank you for this message about a guy that had limitless faith. What an incredible moment that I only wish I could be like. God, would you help us? Would you guide us? Would you lead us?